0: At the end of my shift, you have patients hold your hands and tell you thank you for everything you have done. My name is Romel Tater. I work at Left Span at the Marion Hospital. I've been here 20-plus years. Well, we have increased patient load. We have nursing shortage. So it's been tough, and we just want nurses out there to know it's a nice place to work. We have a lot of support. So if they want to join in, we are here to help them navigate that.
1: Tonight, on Rhode
2: Island PBS Weekly. We're talking about ships that will be in service and protect our nation through 2080. So in many respects, the submarines that are contracted today um, will carry us over the next uh, generation and
3: more.
4: The United States Navy wants its shipbuilding spree to deliver a clear message.
3: We want China to kind of wake up every day and say, you know, today is not the day I want to go invade Taiwan. Today is not the day I want to start
5: anything with the U.S. Navy. Everybody loves classical music, but they just don't know it yet. I grew up listening to film scores and popular music of the day. Barbra Streisand, Frank Sinatra, Ennio Morricone, all of these folks. That was a gateway into Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart, and I thought, wow, these are the real masters.
6: Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. I'm Michelle San
4: Miguel. As the war in Ukraine rages on, Russian President Vladimir Putin continues to threaten to use nuclear weapons if the Western Alliance interferes militarily. Added to all of that, Russia and China are strengthening their relationship, a concern to U.S. national security. Lawmakers say this should serve as a wake-up call that more needs to be done to bolster the United States at sea. As we first reported last June, for the Navy, building up its battle force is a pressing issue as it faces increased competition at sea. But the Navy is extremely cautious about discussing its work. Much of it is classified. After all, loose lips sink ships.
7: We don't talk a lot about what we do because quite frankly there's a lot of people that want to know and not all of them are friendly to our nation
4: the united states navy's submarine force is often called the silent service every day submariners are deployed around the world on classified missions underseas, ready if
3: necessary to launch ballistic missiles we want to be the force that no one messes with you want to be in the bar you want to be the mike tyson person that like if the person who's there to cause trouble is looking around, you're, you're not the one that they're going to they're gonna cause trouble with.
4: Captain Chad Hennings is the commanding officer of the Naval Undersea Warfare Center's Newport Division.
3: You think that the, these missiles are out here. They, they are terrible weapons. No one wants to use them. And I think as a result of our presence being out there, it is, it's kind of maintained that peace over decades since their initial use in World War II.
4: Captain Hennings estimates he spent six to eight years underwater on various sea tours. Now he's working with scientists and engineers at the Naval Undersea Warfare Center, where they're developing the technology used inside of the Navy's underwater vessels. Ron Veen is the center's technical director.
7: What we help do is defend our nation. Most of us don't wear the uniform, right? There's about two dozen active duty military folks here, and there's about 3,500 civilians. So we don't wear the uniform, but we help defend our nation. I gotta tell you, our folks are just as committed as those that wear the uniform.
4: Defending the United States at sea is no small endeavor. About 71% of the earth's surface is covered in water. The Navy is expanding its fleet to maintain what it describes as U.S. maritime superiority. It's big business for Southern New England, where construction is well underway at electric boat the Navy's primary submarine builder. Sean Davies heads up operations at the company's Quonset Point facility.
2: So there's a tremendous amount of energy uh, right now today at Electric Boat. We've been in somewhat of a growth mode over the last several years and our employees see a ton of work on the horizon.
4: For Davies and Andrew Bond, who oversees hiring at Electric Boat, the excitement about working on various projects is palpable.
8: Everyone thinks about shipbuilding as just being welders or electricians, and we need many of those, but we also have you know, thousands of engineers and designers and firefighters and doctors and nurses, and we're growing everywhere.
4: In recent years, the Navy has awarded Electric Boat multi-billion dollar contracts to build two types of submarines, including the Virginia class, a fast attack submarine designed to hunt down other military ships. Electric Boat began building them in the late 90s.
3: They can map and transit uh, minefields very covertly and clandestinely, insert special operations forces um, so that, you know, the, the, the adversary doesn't know that seals are coming onto their beach.
4: To replace the aging Ohio-class subs, last fall, Electric Boat began construction on the Navy's newest submarine class, the Columbia-class ballistic missile submarine. Electric Boat plans to build 12 of them for the Navy.
3: And the role of the ballistic missile submarine is, it provides an assured strategic response um, for anyone that would threaten the United States with strategic or weapons of mass destruction.
4: Building all of these submarines will require Electric Boat to hire more employees than it's had in decades. In the mid-1970s, the company had 26,000 employees. Many of those jobs were lost over the years. But that's changing thanks to contracts with the Navy.
2: We're in that growth mode again today at 17,500 people and continuing to climb until we have enough staffing and enough facilities to support full rate production on both Virginia and Columbia.
4: Last year, Electric Boat hired more than 550 people to work here at its Quonset Point manufacturing facility. This year, the company plans to hire another 1,500 people to work at this site. Its shipyard in Groton, Connecticut is also expanding. With more people comes the need for more space. This time-lapse video shows some of the new construction taking place at Quonset Point.
2: General Dynamics is investing more than 1.7 billion dollars to upgrade and expand, modernize electric boat facilities over the next decade to make sure that we have the space uh, and the facilities that we need to complete that work.
4: The work all boils down to sea power. The Navy wants to send a strong message to other naval powers, including Russia and the country with the largest Navy in the world, China there has to be a great sense of urgency as you both sit here to say, we really need to ramp up our fleet and do it quickly.
3: Yeah, absolutely. The Chinese Navy is kind of what keeps me up at night um, and what you know, kind of gives me the motivation to, that we do our jobs as best as we can, because um, they're just getting, they're getting, as you said, they're getting bigger. They're already platform-wise bigger than our Navy and they're getting better every day at a very high rate of speed.
4: According to a 2020 Department of Defense report, China has a battle force of about 350 ships compared to the United States, which had about 293 ships in early 2020. Does the United States still have the best navy in the world?
7: Uh, I would say that the United States still has the best (laughs) navy in the world, absolutely. I agree
4: even though China has a bigger fleet than
7: we do. Yeah, it also Mm -hmm. goes to mission capabilities. The United States has the advantage right now in the undersea domain, but as you pointed out, we're seeing the threats come in for other nations and recognizing we need to continue to advance the state of the art in undersea warfare and continue to lead in that area.
4: Not just China.
7: No, it's not just China, no. Russia also has a very capable platform that they're continuing to make in numbers. So we have it both, you know, East Coast, West Coast challenges.
4: Veen says those challenges are in part driving the growth at the Naval Undersea Warfare Center. He's been there since 1987.
7: So I was here when Russia went out of business, right, in the early 90s. And as a result, there was a big reduction in focusing or spending in the undersea domain. So we did see reductions then.
4: But the tide is changing. Molly Donahue-McGee wants to ensure the United States retains its undersea advantage.
0: The defense cluster here has been growing and growing strong. We never shut down and we continue to produce for the needs of the Department of Navy.
4: Donahue-McGee is the executive director of the Southeastern New England Defense Industry Alliance, known as Synidia. The organization is helping the defense industry
0: build its labor force. And our charge is make sure we have trained employees today, but build the pipeline of employees for tomorrow because their demand is going well through the 2030s that we need this workforce and this workforce is coming locally.
4: Donna Hugh McGee and the staff at Sanidia have paired hundreds of students with internships, including Faith Leonard. She's studying ocean engineering and economics at the University of Rhode Island and plans to pursue a career in the defense industry.
1: I love the research and design side of things. And um, I started taking sonar classes this year and like the sonar acoustic stuff to me is really interesting, it's always developing. And with defense, there's always
4: jobs and I'm always gonna be employable. You're not worried about finding a job next year when you graduate? No, no, not at all. Leonard says she feels fortunate when she considers the opportunities that exist in the defense sector and wants to
1: see more women join her. My thought process has always been, like, if I can do something that the boys are doing, like, that's awesome. Um, And with there not being a lot of women, I want to, like, encourage girls that are younger than me to get into stuff like this.
4: Donahue McGee also wants to see more women working in defense.
0: It also goes back to reaching out to middle schools, high schools, and showing them the technology that's fun. It's one thing to say learn math, but tell me what I can do with it that's creative, that will spark my interest, that will make me say, whoa, that's what I really want to do going forward.
4: Electric Boat is counting on that young enthusiasm. Andrew Bond says the company expects to reach peak hiring in less
8: than a decade. If you stop and think about who is that, right, that's my daughter in third grade. That's who we have to hire in 2029. So today, I'm, you know, uh, part of my team is focused on how do we give people uh, to Sean that he needs today, but how do we reach back into the high schools into the middle schools and the elementary schools? Because when you take the really long-term view, we've got work out through 2040. Those people aren't even born yet today.
4: Much of the work that happens at Electric Boat is classified. Many employees have a security clearance, and all are
8: required to be U.S. citizens. If you want to work on U.S. Navy submarines, we have a place for you. And if you're an experienced person, we'd love to have you. But if you, if you don't have experience, right, we'll train you. And we have fantastic partnerships set up, right, where we'll, you know, we'll hire you as an employee, and then we'll send you to school to, to earn those skills before you even come and set foot on the factory floor.
4: And those skills are likely to continue to change as the industry keeps evolving. 10, 20 years from now, what do you anticipate the defense industry looking like?
0: I think it will be strong. I think the technology will be totally different from what we see today. There'll be artificial intelligence that's more embedded in it, but we will still be building submarines. We will still be building systems on it.
7: The use of unmanned vehicles is growing. You know, we've all seen the extensive growth in the air domain with predator and global hawk and it being used. But we're definitely seeing increased growth in the undersea domain also.
4: It's another reason why the Navy says the work it's doing now has never been more important.
7: We've always had an advantage in the undersea domain. So the advantage we have has certainly shrunk. What do we do to continue to get that advantage? We want China to kind of wake up every day and say, you
3: know, today is not the day I want to go invade Taiwan. Today is not the day I want to start anything with the U.S. Navy.
6: Next, it may be early spring, but summer music series are already lining up. The Newport Folk and Jazz festivals return in July, as do outdoor concerts by the Rhode Island Philharmonic. Taking the baton once again this season for the summer pops is maestro Troy Quinn, as we first reported last September, Quinn is a conductor with a surprising resume. Meet the music man with Rhode Island roots.
5: first time I ever heard the Rhode Island Philharmonic, I was 18, 17 or 18 years old. That was actually the first orchestra I ever heard live. I just thought it was such a visceral force and it, it caught my attention and I really you know, had aspirations to actually be a conductor from that moment on and saying it would be great to come back here actually one day and conduct.
6: That inspirational moment has taken Troy Quinn full circle. The Connecticut native and 2005 graduate of Providence College is this year's conductor of the Rhode Island Philharmonic Summer Pops. He's leading some of the very professors who were once his music teachers. In this major
5: role reversal, it's a delicate balance of the baton to earn their respect. I'm not telling them what to do or above them. Certainly, we have to have one opinion, otherwise we'd have 80 dissenting opinions on how things should go or the tempo. My philosophy has always been to be energetic and let the music speak through me and the only way I can do that is for other folks to be inspired enough to play their best because I don't make a sound, the conductor doesn't make a sound. So I'm more like, less like a traffic cop and more like uh, hopefully a musical spiritual guru where we're just leading everybody Mm -hmm. to the end result and hopefully people come on board with that. It's a privilege for me, actually, to be with these great musicians that I looked up to my whole career, you know, and so that's special for me to then be making music with them as an equal. Equal
6: and ironic. Quinn's path to the podium was
5: anything but typical. Well, you know, it's a very funny story, actually. The well-kept secret, Pamela, is I didn't even read music until I got to college. Pretty late, by most standards. You
6: did not read music? No,
5: I did not even know what the notes were. I was just... uh, I I learned by rote and by ear. You know, I was singing in choirs, but I didn't know how to read. You didn't play an instrument? I did not, nope. But Quinn says he was able to tap into other talents. I had a lot of ground to make up, but at the same time, I was focused and determined enough. And I knew I had the ear and the mentality and the mind and these humble gifts. I just didn't know how to use them yet. And so that's where these mentors and teachers really developed my career, and, and and I have the drive to do it, you know, because for me it's as important as the air we breathe. You know, I, I, it's not a job, it's a vocation. As a PC student,
6: Quinn majored in vocals and minored in theater. He learned to play piano along the way, eventually earning a doctorate in conducting. <laughs> piece of Quinn's quest to become a conductor, he has a number of stage and screen credits to his name. The pop's rendition of Hollywood movie themes is a wink to Quinn's career. Is it true that you were the stand-in for actor Shia LaBeouf in Indiana Jones movie?
5: I was, that's a true rumor. Um, (laughs) It has nothing to do with music, but that was my five minutes of, of Hollywood fame. But it was really incredible and I had a chance to actually Work, I will say, for a minute with Harrison Ford on a motorcycle after this crash scene in the movie, where for whatever reason Shy wasn't ready yet to come up. and it was so intense. I remember when we were doing this scene for a minute, you know, when they, when Spielberg's yelling action and, and Harrison went into character, he was so intense I almost couldn't look at him actually because he was, he was what I would say is when. I, what I try to epitomize when I'm in the concert hall. You know, when you're in that sort zone. of zone, exactly. And it was uh, it was a little bit intimidating, but fun nonetheless.
6: Another fun yet surreal moment, Quinn says, was performing
5: on tour with the Rolling Stones. It had to be a rush. It really was. You got an idea of what it would be like to be a rock star with people throwing things on the stage and going wild. But you know, it's a different world from Brahms and Rachmaninoff and Beethoven that I also embrace you know that's the great thing about music it's you know it's like Stravinsky said I I never um, understood a bar music in my life but I sure did feel it
6: That theory is feeding a movement to help draw younger audiences to the symphony by blending classical with a
5: commercial pop sound. We do have the, what I will call, courage to put out these sort of hybrid programs, you know. And certainly in my other orchestras, and along with the Royal Philharmonic, one of the initiatives is to try to reach as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. And if that's through a John Williams score, great. If that's through... Um, a Danny Elfman score, if that's through Lady Gaga, and we also, maybe they'll hear something more classical on the program. It's exposure to music, I think. Everybody loves classical music, but they just don't know it yet, you know, and that certainly was the case with myself. I grew up to listening to film scores and popular music of the day, and, and, and uh, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, Ennio Morricone, all of these folks. Then I got, that was a gateway into Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart, and I thought, wow, these are the the real masters. Quinn admits he does get some pushback from classical music purists who prefer a traditional program. All the time. But I will tell you, it is the minority. You know, my programming is fairly controversial um, because we're blending multiple genres, and we are now trying to reach the most amount of folks we can. Um, you know, but this has been going, ar- going on, Pamela, for decades.
1: Get up, get up, get
5: up, up, up. Bernstein did this with his Young People's mm-hmm. Concerts mm-hmm. and would, you know, break down the chords of a Beatles tune and then relate that to Stravinsky, you know, and so I think the way we approach it now has changed, not the actual content. We're still trying to do the same thing, blend genres and reach a lot of people, but now we're doing it through the music of the day.
6: At the end of the day, Quinn welcomes opportunities to perform on popular TV shows. He's appeared on The Voice and Glee and recorded with stars like Jennifer Hudson but Quinn's favorite role is as a classical conductor. Currently, he leads the Owensboro Symphony in Kentucky and the Venice Symphony in Florida.
5: But you know, that's my drug. That's my, uh, I don't have too many vices, but, but for me, that's what I love and that's what keeps me coming back to music. So you can't always get what you want sometimes, Yeah, that's right. right.
4: <laughs> the first Summer Pops concert is scheduled for July 15th on Narragansett Beach. Finally, the Providence Athenaeum has been on Benefit Street for more than 180 years. Tonight, in our continuing series, Window on Rhode Island, Stephanie Ovoyan, head of Research and Library Services, gives us a tour and shares some of its most intriguing finds.
1: Hi, I'm Stephanie Ovoyan. I'm the Head of Research and Library Services here at the Providence Athenaeum. We are kind of a relic here in Providence, we're a 19th century library that's operating in the 21st century. The building has so much charm and so many fun little aspects to it that any time you turn a corner you're bound to notice something new. Here we are at the Athenaeum's card catalog. This was introduced to the library in the 1880s, and a librarian named Grace Leonard was hired in 1895, specifically to introduce the Dewey Decimal System to the library. So at the time of her hire, we had 56,000 items in the collection, and it took Grace 13 years to finish writing out all of the cards. If we open up one of these drawers, you can still see Grace's handwritten cards inside. So here we have one of the gems of the Athenaeum's art collection. This is The Hours by Newport-based artist Edward Malbone. It was stolen in 1881 by one Providence gentleman and then another man who was thought to have been part of Jesse James's gang. But a detective was on the case, uh, produced a reward poster, and the works came back to the library. It's lived in this case here ever since. All right, so welcome to the Philbrook Rare Book Room. Out on display on the cabinet today, we have the description of Egypt. This set of books was commissioned by Napoleon when he was bringing his troops to Egypt. He also brought scholars, scientists, and artists to record everything that they were seeing in Egypt. And then they published their findings in this set of books. It was a real hot-ticket item at the time, and the books were responsible for paving the way for the birth of modern Egyptology and kicking off the wave of Egyptomania that swept through North America and Europe at the time. Here we have the volumes of text in these folio-sized volumes. Next, we've got the volumes of plates, which were published in these elephant folio-sized volumes. And then lastly, we have three of these double-elephant folio-sized volumes, which contain the largest plates and maps. And these are the largest books in the Athenaeum's collection. And then just for fun, I've pulled out also the library's smallest book. This measures just about an inch by three-quarters of an inch, and it's an edition of Robert Burns' Kilmarnock uh, poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect. And this is the art room where we honor the legacy of Edgar Allan Poe. We'll set the scene in the year 1848. The poet Sarah Helen Whitman was a local poet. and By 1848, she was considered one of the best poets in America. And also in the year 1848, the poet Edgar Allan Poe was the talk of literary society. The two poets began a correspondence, and Poe would come to visit Whitman here in Providence. The two would come to the Athenaeum. And at one point during their time at the Athenaeum, Whitman asked Poe if he knew who wrote a poem called Ula Loom, which had been anonymously published in a periodical called the American Whig Review. Poe took our copy of that book off the shelf, opened up to the poem, and signed his name in pencil at the bottom of the page, because he had written it, he had just submitted it anonymously. We have that book in our collection still today, here. Um, and you can see his signature at the bottom of the page right there. That must have been kind of a smooth move between poets, and Whitman agreed to marry Poe, on the condition that he remained sober because he had a known drinking problem. At one point during one of their visits at the Athenaeum on December 23rd, two days before their Christmas Day wedding, someone came in with a note for Whitman claiming to have seen Poe out drinking that morning and the night before. She ran back to her home where she fainted on the couch. Poe begged her to still marry him and she said while she did still love him, she could no longer marry him. Poe left Providence, uh, the two never saw each other again, and then he was dead within a year. So it's a bit of a tragic love story. But Sarah Helen Whitman lived for almost 30 more years after Poe's death, and she was a firm defender of his reputation. Here we are in an alcove at the Athenaeum, this is a fun little secret part of the library that we like to tell people about. Here in the desk, You can see that over the years, lots of visitors have come to the library and left little notes for one another inside the desk drawers. You can find them throughout the library. This drawer has a ton. This one probably has about 50 notes inside. Um, Other desks have a similar amount, some have fewer. Um, They're just tucked in everywhere. So this one's pretty lovely, this illustration in there. Um, We've got all sorts of notes, little poems, longer letters, so everyone is part of the Athenaeum's history. Um, it doesn't have to be from 1850 or 1838 when we were established, but even just last year or this year, everyone makes a little mark on the library. That's our
4: broadcast this evening. I'm Michelle San Miguel.
6: I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org slash weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you for joining us. Good night.